Brian, such a pleasure. When I was researching for this podcast, uh, I thought I knew you well. I'd followed your work, seen all your movies, like everybody listening to this. But what really struck me was your childhood experience with dyslexia. And I am curious about a couple of things. One is, would love to you to share with the audience how that impacted you and shaped you. And the second part which struck me was, you are so fantastic at observing people and making connections with people in ways a lot of regular people. And I was curious whether your overcoming dyslexia kind of gave you other kinds of superpowers, which made you more observant, made you better able to connect people in ways just, you know, a lot of others are not able to. Um, I think it has given me an, an advantage, uh, the fact that I had dyslexia, which was pretty scarring. Um, and, you know, growing up with this, with acute dyslexia as a kid, um, you were just classified as dumb. You know, you just, mm. this, this kid doesn't get it. He can't read, he can't spell. Um, so, uh, and you know, in classrooms, it sort of forced you in groups, it forced you to behave differently. It forced you um, to anticipate and avoid questions that would would have requi required reading. Mm -hmm. So, in order to re avoid questions that that uh, were that would be connected to reading, you had to be pretty ingenious. So you had to invent momentary illnesses or a cough <laughs> or start sneezing or hiccuping or um, you know a variety of different behaviors that that aren't really even a byproduct of any of those things. They're just invented to survive embarrass you know potential embarrassment by not knowing you know simple answers to questions that would have been uh, learned by reading so it was relatively painful it was painful for for anyone that has any uh, disability and and uh, of course i'm more familiar with dyslexia but i did make a movie that was kind of generated because of my sensitivity to that we're going to get into that obviously you know maybe some of your best work you know one huge theme uh, uh you know of your life has been these uh curiosity conversations and there's an amazing book which we're going to uh, link to could you talk to us about you know some people who watch this may go look you're brian grazer anyone's going to take your phone call anyone's <laughs> going to reply to your email but you actually started when you're nobody really and yeah. you were able to get meeting some really famous people so talk to us about that because you know the people are watching this may go like how do i ever get a meeting with Carl Sagan or, uh, you know, Isaac Asimov or any one of those people, but you started at a very young age. I started at a very young age also, you know, partly because of my dyslexia, which I think you're alluding to, um, because it's just so much easier for me to learn interactively. Um, and it's right. so easier for anyone with dyslexia to learn interactively. Probably the, the beginning of this started my graduation day from USC. Okay. I, I finished, I graduated college. I was in the last few years really able to excel in testing mm. because I figured out a system of testing uh, of how to test, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it was very successful. And so I graduated, you know, with honors, and then asked myself a rhetorical question. I was always a kid that asked a lot of questions, always, always. And my grandmother was my mentor, and mm. she would constantly uh, support and validate. The idea of asking questions that what and that asking questions wasn't 
some show of ignorance. It wasn't show some show. It wasn't showing something that would be weakness. It would be something that would be powerful to, to ask questions. So I asked myself this rhetorical question: What did I learn at USC? Mm-hmm. And quickly answered, nothing. <laughs> I don't think I learned really much of anything. And I thought, well, okay, I must have learned something. This is like a di- internal dialogue I was having. And I thought, well, what I learned was to cope in, with larger populations of people. How to, you know, deal with large populations of people, survive and excel in large populations of people. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. And then I thought, well, I had one class. It was abnormal psychology, a 480 class. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was my what I ended up graduating in. And his name was Dr. Milton Walpin. I obviously remember it pretty vividly. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I want to go see Dr. Milton Walpin because the class that I was in with him was quite large. It was in, in excess of 300 people, students. Wow. Who I, I, yeah, it was huge. And I've tracked him down in the summer pretty quickly. Uh, it wasn't easy. And then he said, well, what, what are you doing now? I mean, you, you don't need me, you know, um, <laughs> you've already graduated, didn't you? Right. I said, well, I did, but you really stuck out in my mind. And so he was kind of trying to blow me off, like, you know, politely, like, well, great. Good to meet you. Good to see you again. I said, just have a <laughs> cup of coffee with me right now, please. So I sort of found my way into having a cup of coffee that I turned into about an hour conversation. And boy, did I learn a lot. I learned more in that hour than I did in his entire class. And I thought that was fundamentally true of most of my classes. What, that, what did um, you learn specifically? What was he teaching then? What he was teaching was different forms of behavioral therapy. And okay. he was teaching um, mirroring, mirroring techniques. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, neuro-linguistic programming. Got it. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that's what he was teaching. And that was the, its most nascent stage. Mm-hmm. By the way, ne- neuro-linguistic programming was experienced by firewalking originally. The people that could actually walk on those red hot coals right. were able to do that because of neuro-linguistic probing, programming. It was, that, was it. Their, uh, that was the way they were able to do that. So, wait, 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 hold on. I'm, I'm just maybe on a tangent. How, how does that work? work? Right? How does the... How, how does something, how does NLP help you with not getting your feet burned? Well, it, it was it was physiologically proven that your feet wouldn't get burned. It was just the pain that you would feel. Right. And so there was a way to block the pain by doing this mirroring, te- mirroring technique. Right, right, right. You know, and as you know, then it was later used in study groups where mm-hmm. does, uh, you know, if there's a hundred salespeople at desks all in one room, you know, one big room arena. And they, we did a baseline of their success level. If they all had offices, they did twice as well because they imagined themselves to be in a better status than they were with a hundred, as opposed to being at a desk with a hundred other people. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. I know that. That makes, that makes sense. Right? Because, so, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm guessing at that point, you know, when you were talking to this uh, teacher, uh, you know, NLP, neurolinguistic programming, was very early. Like, you know, it, it isn't the, the hot thing that it is today where everyone's like talking about it. You sat down for coffee, you talked to this guy, and, and what happens from there? What happened from there, the, what ultimately happened from there is 
uh, I, I had to get a job. Well, this takes me into my kind of my life story. But mm -hmm. what happened is, you know, I had to get a summer job. And I was planning to go, I'd been accepted to go to law school at USC. I was, accept, was going to go to law school mm -hmm. just because I didn't know what else to do. Like, you know, yeah. okay, what do I do? Uh, what further education? So I thought, okay, I'll, be a, I'll go the direction of law. And so I just happened to be in my apartment. I'm trying to abbreviate this, but I was in my apartment complex in Santa yeah. Monica on yeah. Ocean Avenue. Yeah. And <laughs> I overhear these three uh, law school graduates mm -hmm. uh, about the easiest job anyone could possibly imagine. That's how they're yeah. talking about it. And they're just blowing it off like, yeah, it was so easy. You know, my job was much easier than your job. They're doing a comparative on what was the easiest job. So I overhear that it was a law clerk job and it happened to be at Warner Brothers Pictures. Mm -hmm. Now, I knew nothing about movies at all, really. And I didn't really even think about Warner Brothers Pictures. And I didn't really think about that I live in Hollywood where, where, where Warner Brothers and MGM and all the major studios were. Because it just wasn't in my vision, you know? It just wasn't what I was thinking about. So I just overhear about the job and this guy just quit. And I call, with the time, it's 843-6000. I asked for Peter Connect's office, reached the office, talked to his assistant, and I conned my way into going to in for an interview because the job was now vacant, vacant that day. Right. So I get the job the same day that this guy quit, which was three o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And um, now I'm a law clerk at Warner Brothers, whatever that <laughs> means. But you have your foot in the door, right? You're now inside. Now I'm inside. Not knowing really what inside was, but I was inside. <laughs> and so the job was easy. The first week I had absolutely nothing at all to do. In my little, it was about a six by 10 foot cubicle with no windows. And then that second week, someone came in and says, you're delivering these papers. And That's I said, okay, what are that. these papers? Yeah. They're documents for, to, that are to go to Warren Beatty, yeah. who's at the time the most famous movie star in the world. And so I'm now delivering the papers to Warren Beatty. It's a big, thick stack. And trying to hand the papers to Warren Beatty at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Mm -hmm. So his assistant comes down, says, just give me the papers. I say, I can't give the papers to you. They're invalid unless I hand them directly to Mr. Beatty, which, of course, I just invented that on the spot. Right. But how did you think about that? You know, that's just it's not something that especially when you're really young and you're meeting somebody incredibly famous, it's very intimidating, right? Like you have these like assistants, you have a lot of people around them. It's it's kind of takes a lot of courage to just invent something like that to go meet this person. How did you even come up with that? Well, I just think that everything is like dating. I mean, businesses yeah. are like dating. <laughs> businesses are like dating. Meeting is like dating. Everything is dating. Yeah. And you have to invent stories. You just have to come up with stuff. So I was a good date. <laughs> I was a good date. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, I love that you say that every one of your curiosity conversations, one something that you think about is how do I make this the best date that you've ever had? Mm -hmm. Kind of tying this kind of all back to. Exactly. Actually, you're exactly right. <laughs> I do think to myself, my goal is to make my curiosity conversation the best date that Isaac Asimov or Edward Teller could ever have or awesome. a Barack Obama or whoever it yeah. is. I mean, I've met with everybody from Princess Di to, to uh, Margaret Thatcher. I had this great conversation with her. I mean, so you have to make it juicy. You have to make it fun. You have to yeah. 
I mean, they don't want to just talk about facts and they don't want to hear the question of like, hey, what's your job like? Or the generalized questions never fly as you guys right. need. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think the key part is you have to be entertaining, right? Like, you know, um, um, okay, I want to really, this is probably the most exciting part of this for me. And I really wanted to get into the brass stacks. So, right. you know, the curiosity conversations. Now, of course, you don't need this anymore. You have a system. You are who you are. But earlier on, you had this amazing instinct for dealing with the gatekeepers, the assistants, the yeah. admins, the you know the PR teams. And yeah. you know, it's funny. We had uh, uh, Sagar and Jerry, who hosts a very popular show on our podcast recently, and he was talking about how we got to interview Trump in the previous administration. And he spent a year helping set up. Trump staff on dates and having grabbing drinks with them before he got in access to prison. This is months of a hundred plus people just yeah. trying to work his way through the whole system. Uh, and I saw that I was like, wait, this is exactly what you talk about. So talk to us about you and for a conversation. Uh, how do you deal with the gatekeepers? Oh my God, they are the most important. I mean, I will literally do anything to entertain the three assistants that somebody has. Um, but I, initially I write a letter, or, you know, I type an email, um, in the day I would actually write letters. And, um, then what I would do is I'd make sure to follow up. I'd say, who can I follow up with? Or I would just absolutely find the way I don't often, like, I'm actually, I'm going to challenge that. I don't usually ask the subject, how do I follow up? I have already figured out how to follow up. Mm. I'm sure you guys know that yourselves having yeah. done startups and so because everything is a startup. I mean, making yeah. a movie is a startup, making a TV show, meeting a new person um, without where there's no over, overlapping agenda is, is a startup. So basically what I would do is I would definitely entertain the assistants, make them laugh, uh, be in, genuinely interested. People detect if you're not. Um, it's easy for me to be genuinely interested because I actually – the one, you know, the one or two or three things that, you know, I would embody as characteristics, I am really interested in people. I find endless amount of mysteries living in each person <laughs> and secrets. Right, right. <laughs> and so I, I, I work, I do that. Even with my three assistants, incidentally, I still always dial myself. Even, I won't, I will not let them make the outgoing phone call. I don't want, I don't want the assistant to have to, uh, put their boss on hold. I don't right. want anyone to wait. Right. I want to make it really comfortable for... You said uh, once that you learned that from Oprah Winfrey on uh, how she just dials people directly and just like deals with other people that she wants to get on her show or just work with or talk to directly. Is that kind of yeah. where it comes from? Um, I don't think it really... It might have been influenced by that. Right, and, right. I was actually in my, I really wanted to meet Oprah Winfrey, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And really, really, really wanted to. And I had already made a lot of movies and I was pretty successful, but I just thought she's not going to know who I am and it won't matter. And I was making movies with Spike Lee at the time called um, Inside Man with Denzel yeah. Washington. Yes. And the two of them just go, she knows who you are, Grazer. I go, <laughs> I don't know. And so, you know, I called directly. I did a few things and, um, and, uh, they said she's going to call back. And I said to Spike, maybe you could call so she will call back. No, 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 no. She's going to call you back. So now I happen to be in a meeting with J-Lo. And J-Lo is singing five songs. She goes, I just did these five songs. They're all in Spanish. You want to hear? 
So I'm listening to her and she's like one-on-one. I'm at my desk. She's right in front of me performing these five songs. And in the middle of her fourth song, they say, Oprah Winfrey's on the line. I go, oh my God. And so I said to J-Lo, please, you're gonna have to excuse me. And she said, well, I'm just in the middle of this song. I said, I know, but it's Oprah Winfrey, you know, like, because it blew my mind so much. And it was she on the phone with my assistant. And I, that did, did influence me. And I jumped right on, talked to her and it was really gratifying. And I met with her the following day. Okay. I want to get into the actual conversation because I find this interesting and you and I talk about how to do some of these because you have a little bit of a dance, right? You know, you are very curious. You want to understand something about the other person. You also want to offer value. Like, you know, no real successful accomplished person, you know, just wants to, you know, talk about what they are doing or, you know, what they know. You want to be, you know, and genuinely be interested and offer some um, value to them. Uh, How, what is the perfect first conversation with somebody for you. It usually makes it work where I start off by saying, did you know? And then I tell them, uh, like with, with Dr. Dre, I said, do you know the song Exodus? Um, it's a theme song. Cause he's, because I thought to myself, one of the creative ingredients to his music that is really different, differentiating is that his music is melodic. So it's not just, you know, it's just not yelling. It's not aggressive that way. It's um, he often has great melodies. Mm. So I thought to myself, what song has, you know, that really resonated for me has a great melody. And that's the theme song to the movie Exodus, which I think was like 1976. But it's a great song. It's really beautiful, really Mm -hmm. symphonic and beautiful. Or Jay-Z, I brought up with Jay-Z who, you know, he's a great, he's such a superstar. He's amazing and a person that, you know, you want to be on your toes because he's um, relaxed in manner, but he's as sharp as you could possibly be, like mm. really quite brilliant. And uh, I brought up um, uh, Amadeus, mm. which is about genius. And he didn't know it, but he he brought up the word genius. And I said, well, a movie that really defined genius to me. And then, so I was able to like teach him something or show him something that he didn't, hadn't already seen. So that interested him. And then he then came up with the tagline to our documentary that we were making. We were making a documentary at the time called Made in America, Mm. um, which was a music doc. But he said, there's a little bit of genius in all of us. And I thought that was really poetic and kind of beautiful. And that became the defining or the signature of this piece that we did together. It's amazing. And I think one of the things which I love in what you do is... You have to uh, give somebody something. Yes. yes. Yeah. And yes. I think it's hard sometimes, you know, when I meet somebody or you meet somebody and you're a fan, you know, um, and yeah. you're, you're grown up idolizing that person, you get a little starstruck. I mean, even if you're used to something, you get a little starstruck. And it's interesting because I was talking to a really famous movie star. And they said, on the other side, you feel pressure because this person's a fan and you want to give them something memorable. Oh but you've talked about that movie a million times, right? right? And you are now on the pressure. Like, how do I not disappoint this person, right. you know, with all the experience? So I think it's an interesting dynamic on both sides of that conversation. Yeah, I think there is too. I hadn't thought of that because like you, I have a, a very inaccurate perception of myself. (laughs) You know, um, you know, it would appear similar to you, by the way, you know, I think we're fundamentally humble people. And so we don't, I wouldn't normally think, oh my God, I'm going to have some impact on them. 
I definitely <laughs> always find myself. I put myself in the position of performance. Right, I, I, right, right. I, and I I'm a great that. guest. Have me over for dinner. I'll be one of your favorite guests. Yeah. <laughs> you're on. You're on. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. Um, you know, um, just reading through the movies that you've made, part of me, what, what really strikes me is how you being curious, just innately curious. Uh, and this is like, you know, across a lot of articles we've read, uh, you went on podcasts and that just this constant thread of like curiosity comes up. I was wondering how much of that led you to do movies like, you know, you met with, you know, Nash and his wife and, you know, later on came up like The Beautiful Mind, similarly meeting Eminem. Um, how much do you attribute curiosity to your success in the world of movies? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, first of all, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is this is that at the end of the line is trying to find a movie star to help personify that story that you've created right. or that you've nurtured uh, you know, um, into life. And so everybody wants Tom Hanks and everybody wants Denzel Washington. Right. So I always felt like I had a competitive advantage because I had a variety of, because I had so many of these curiosity conversations, which gave me a variety of, 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 subjects that I could turn to like a tool at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And I always felt, I always would show that off a little bit mm -hmm. to, you know, whether it's, you know, or Eddie Murphy, I've done six or seven movies with him. And uh, same with these, the other guys I just mentioned. And it's just, um, I think that they think they know that someday making this movie, we're going to be in a foxhole, at least one, mm -hmm. at least one foxhole. We won't have the money to shoot a scene. Uh, there'll be some problem with another. They're just, there's always problems. Right. Even in the perfect scenario. It's the same way with you guys in businesses. There's always a problem within the singular narrative. And so I think they see that as a competitive advantage. They'll figure like, oh, Grazer will figure it out. You know, I somehow feel like it's never been stated to me, mm. but I, I do think that is, uh, a conscious or subconscious advantage that I, mm -hmm. I might have that they would think, oh, he'll figure it out because he either either knows these people or he knows the subject to lead to something right. else. Look, I say, I, it, you probably read in the book, I, I kind of say, I, I made this movie called How the Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim mm -hmm. Carrey. Yep. Yes. And Jim Carrey was quitting about a week before the movie was to start. Maybe it's two weeks. And he said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to quit because this is just too hard. It's too hard to do six hours of prosthetics every day, to wear these contact lenses to make his eyes green. Because that's the part of the, and which it was just so painful sealing off all of his pores. And um, he said, I'm gonna give back all the money that you guys advanced me. I'm gonna give you back the entire thing plus interest, I'm out. And because I met a man that was expert in teaching uh, the CIA and State Department, how to survive torture. He was he was a <laughs> torture relief specialist that what started in the FBI. But he's very 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 well known. And I'd met with him, and I thought he will have some technique because Jim Carrey is feeling as though he is tortured. It's exactly right. the same as mm -hmm. being a soldier buried alive in a hole for a week. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, for for Jim. And which, of course, I know of a soldier that I talked to that was buried alive in a hole for two full weeks, a French soldier. 
and uh, survived. So I was very interested in survival and I've met many other people. Veronica Denegre in Chile was tortured in a Chilean prison unpredictably for 18 straight months. So it's a subject I was interested in, not only how you survive, but all the different aspects of that. So I was able to bring that expertise to Jim, gave him a weekend with this man, came in from uh, Virginia, and uh, on Monday he said, I can do it. I'll, I'm in, I'll stay in. And he wow. used the techniques that this man mm -hmm. taught him to to uh, to potentially, you know, to survive and to do his best work. Wow, that's an amazing story. Uh, which, you know, I want to bring to something else on just the movies you made. This is actually a good segue. Uh, some of your best work, you know, for example, uh, Apollo 13, Beautiful Mind. One could one thing that strikes me is you know the ending, right? You know that, you know, the crew is not dying. They're going to make it back. But yeah. so much of the movie is about the internal psychological drama, makeup, scar tissue, which makes it fascinating. And... And I think that's, and you especially, I think, have such a unique way uh, to make it all work. So talk to us about that, because as an outsider the movie industry, you go like, well, how is it these movies where, you know, the heroes survive, you know it because you probably know it, they didn't, but they are so engrossing. Break that apart for us. Okay. And I just did another, produced another movie that Ron Howard also directed, because those two you just referred to, um, uh, Apollo 13 and 13 Lives, mm -hmm. that's out right now. Um, you do know they survived. The Thai, mm. You knew that these Thai, 13 Thai kids survived. Yeah. In the case of Apollo 13, these guys did too. So basically you have to create, as you point out, internal drama, um, really suspense. And the way you do that is you have to do a lot of cutting. This is something Ron invented on Apollo 13, and probably somebody did it before Ron at some point in his life. But But he basically constructed a scenario where you're – cutting back and forth to mission control from the capsule to mission control to people's, the children's lives, you know, the, their, the kids, their, their sons and daughters' lives to a priest, you know, you're creating symbols that show the potential tragedy that this could become, mm. who, it, who it would impact, meaning, you know, the kids and family, and in the end, the world, because... It does, um, you know, the movie Apollo 13 wasn't just about that. It was really about the space program. Does, does the space program survive? Does it work? And, and that was a similar thing that we did with 13 Lives. Coincidentally, the 13 is involved for some reason. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, it's like the, the you know, the Brian Ron 13, uh, uh, you know, do maybe trilogy in the making, which actually is a fantastic segue because I really want to talk to you about Ron Howard, right? So you and Ron have had a fantastic partnership for decades. Uh, by the way, folks haven't listened, you were both on the Invest Like the Best podcast recently with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, which was fantastic, mm -hmm. fabulous. And, uh, you know, I Thanks. grew up, by the way, in India watching Ron on reruns of Happy Days. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, uh, which is actually a bit before my time, but they used to have these reruns on Indian TV and I used to grow up with him and, you know, Henry Winkler and everybody. Talk to us about how you and Ron met. And also, it is so unique to have these partnerships just last. And how is it, what, how do you complement each other? What is your process as kind of individuals, human beings, creators over these decades? Okay, well, I met Ron through a curiosity conversation. So basically, right. he was just a, a victim. 
(laughs) (laughs) I yelled out my window at Paramount Studios where I had an office and I yelled, hey, Ron, Ron. He was down on the I was on the third floor. He was down walking. And I think I scared the shit out of him. Like, Ron, Ron, you know, it's me, Brian. You know, like he didn't know me, but I was (laughs) making a lot of noise, um, which I'm very able to do. And um, and then I said, called his assistant. I worked her really hard and said, oh, I was the guy that yelled at Ron, Ron, Ron Howard. He was the, he was the guy that ducked around a corner to get away from yeah. the guy that's yelling at him. Yeah, by the and, way, uh, but a pro tip for everyone listening, do not yell at Ron Howard on the street as a way to meet him. Right. There are better yeah. ways. Thank you very much. Thanks for the caveat. Um, so in any event, so we meet and he came into my office and and uh, I just thought he had an aura about him that uh, revealed uh, goodness and and that anything, you know, goodness in many ways, you know, the way good heart, that he'd be successful, that he was successful. He just hadn't climbed this one mountain, which was making a big theatrical film. Mm-hmm. And nor had I at the time. So we both were aspiring to do the same thing. And I sort of, had, according to my grandmother, had the gift or gab. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I could get I could get us into the right meetings. Um, it wasn't easy to get the first movie made, but we did. And the second one was a little bit harder about a man and a mermaid falling in love, which everyone thought that was just the stupidest idea of all. But in any event, so that's how I met Ron. And... Um, the chemistry was really good and and we do different things um you know i i understood the i understood how to really understood it even in my early stage after being this law clerk how to navigate um the terrain of hollywood mm-hmm. you know with that i i was i understood what people psychologically needed mm-hmm. you know whether it was person that was chairman of a studio, whether it was Lou Wasserman, whether it was, you know, Bate, Warren Beatty, uh, any of these people, I could understand Mm -hmm. what is it that they want? What do they, what, what, what do they value? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, what their leverage is in the business itself. And so I, I did learn pretty early on that ideas are the umbrella of all employment. So I was good at inventing and industrializing movie ideas. Wait, wait, explain that a bit. That's yeah. a fascinating what that sentence. Mean? What does that mean? Um, it means that what, what I just said is um, what it meant was that one can, in the case I was able to come up with basically one line ideas. And the one line, you know, followed by a sentence, followed by a paragraph, should be transporting you to another place. Hmm. Uh, give us a, give us an example. Give us an example. Like what would like if any one of you What's an idea that became that? Well, the mermaid movie was one, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, it was about transporting people into a love story that was unattainable. Be- hmm. And it's unattainable because she's a mermaid and lives in the ocean. Right. So she has under she has also in that movie, we gave her powers because I wanted right. her to have power, not only just elusiveness, and but just have power. We, we actually, sh- no one had ever done this, but we shot a stunt double out of a cannon in the ocean in the Bahamas and shot him into the sky to prove that they had power to, you know, to leap beyond any cap- anyone's possible capability. So 
and all characters, any movie that's successful, the character almost always has power. I actually learned that from Jim Carrey. I didn't think of power. Um, and he said, all comedy is about power. And I thought, I, I thought that was true, that all hmm. comedy is about power. Ultimately. How so? Because one version of what I've heard, uh, which is, uh, you know, when you're listening to a certain kind of comedian, right, for example, a Chappelle or Rogan, for example, by the your podcast, Rogan, again, is spectacular, highly recommend yes. people to oh, watch that. And I think Rogan's take is when you're listening to one of these amazing comedians, for a few minutes, they you are entering their world mm -hmm. and they're walking you through their process, right? Like Logan would be like, and all of a sudden you're like, who bought the baby in? And you're like, huh, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, and uh, and there is sort of like a, a power over the audience in terms of constructing a narrative and a worldview, which then people follow through. That's one sense of it. But what what do you mean when you say, uh, or what does Jim Carrey mean when he says comedy is about power? He means that initially he's capable of creating a bridge between you and all audiences. Mm -hmm. The same thing as Chappelle. He he creates a bridge that he's where he's accessible, but he's saying stuff that lives in your brain that you're not even aware that you're thinking about. Mm. And he is able to, has the power to pull that out of your brain and entertain you and ultimately put a spell on you, hip, hypnotize you. <laughs> so often it's really with, like with Chappelle, his execution is, is so profoundly brilliant. He's sometimes less about what he says, but the hypnosis that he puts you mm -hmm. under. We've been watching The White Lotus uh, season two uh, recently. Yeah. You know, it's fantastic. And it, and one thing we were discussing with some friends was why is everyone talking about the show? And obviously it's very well done. It's engrossing. It's funny. And um, But I think there is a sense of these characters who seem outlandish, weird, and you make fun of. Also, you see shades of yourself in them, right? For if sure. you're in the, if you're in a relationship, you see shades of the couple. If you have a dad or a son, you have you know your relationship that you're working through. You see shades of that, and I think that is this kind of this tension between how you're making fun of them, but maybe deep down, maybe in some ways you want to acknowledge or not acknowledge yourself. You're like, huh, I relate to some aspect of this character, and there's something magical in there. Yeah, I so agree with you. In fact, I watched the last episode of season two last night. It's exactly right. Like, just the fact you guys did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, did, did, we did. did. We can spoil it here, right? Like, yeah, we can spoil it on no, the no, show. No, no, don't spoil it. Spoil it. Don't spoil it. Spoil it. <laughs> yeah. Don't spoil it. But it's basically like, even if you think you, you know, you're, you, you know, you've convinced yourself that you're moral and you have never, you have never had an affair, nor would you, you often have fantasies of an affair. <laughs> 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 you know? Um, and I think what they're saying is, you can't deny these fantasies. <laughs> they live in you. Yeah, I, and um, some, sometimes something is so simple, right? For example, and I wish I had F, you know, uh, Murray Abraham's voice and articulation. I don't, but he's saying about at sometimes you just want to come home to a warm embrace from a woman. And there's some some very simple thing about the the homecoming and everyone looking forward to home they can go to, which is so simple and profound, beautiful. I, show. I, yeah, I think what works in the show, like I think it's almost kind of the opposite, where it's like. It's not that you watch it to make fun of these people. I think you watch it because they're endearing to you in some way. I think you yeah, look at them and you go, yeah, they I feel that. To you, they prove to you that we're all flawed, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, we are all, in spite of all these 
messy, flawed behavior, we can go do some like really interesting things, you know, outside of the show context oh, and yeah. everything else. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah that's that a really good point. That's a really good point. That's, mm-hmm. that's a very good I know. point. Though on the show, I would say, Portia, you should not get in the car if you're being kidnapped. No, don't do that. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, get out of the car. Um, I, think, I, I think that's also like our Indian instincts. I think like, you know, it's like, Oh, this is a guy you don't trust. Like, what are you doing? Like, half the time, Run away. Get, get out of the other. car. Okay. Get out of the car. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Okay, so I want to, this is going to be a fun bit. Um, I want to yeah. talk to you about uh, people you had curiosity connections, but also people you've worked with. Yeah. And talk to us about maybe what makes them special in their craft or as a human. And I'm going to pick somebody, you know, you had a long association with Tom Hanks. Right. Um, yeah. We all watch all of his movies and I have actually a story about Tom, which I'll get to. But I want to ask you, what makes him so special in maybe way as we as civilians don't understand? Well, I think we saw that like in the very first movie that he'd ever done was the one that, you know, where we, you know, the mermaid movie. Uh, mm-hmm. He falls in love with the mermaid um, is that he doesn't have the he doesn't have the flashy role. He's not the hooky, you know, the character he's not jack nicholson you know right or michael keaton for that matter he doesn't have that hooky Mm -hmm. character you know where he's um he's where those guys are spectacular they're perfect they are the most fun of all time Uh, but you couldn't really be with them all day whereas you can be with tom hanks all day um and tom hanks will entertain you but he won't do it in the same way they will do it um you will definitely root for Tom Hanks's survival and success always. Mm. And that's kind of why, you know, he was a, he was mostly known for comedy, but we cast him in Apollo 13 because I thought to myself, well, who did, you know, because Kevin Costner was an obvious choice and a lot of these action stars were obvious choices. And we thought, but then I thought, but who does the world want to save the most? And I right. thought Tom Hanks wants, they want, <laughs> The world wants to save Tom Hanks the most. Right, so, right. So he just, um, he causes you, he ignites the empathy in all of us. Yeah, I, uh, one thing, I got, we got to meet Tom a little bit and kind of got to know him a little bit over the last few years. Um, you know, I have sort of a scorecard for famous people that I meet, which oh. is what is the difference between how you expect them to be based on their public persistent body of work and oh, yeah. how are they in person once they kind of drop the first 30, 40 minutes of the show they put on. And one of the things I really appreciate about uh, Tom is he is probably the closest to how you expect him to be, right? If you've yeah. seen his movies, and, and by the way, not everybody's like that, you know, and this is not movies, like sometimes you see a famous CEO, they seem like a genuine warm person, turns out they're like a total jerk, right? Or, you know, or, <laughs> or for example, sometimes comedians, right? Comedians are really interesting because they don't want to perform, they don't want to be funny, like they, they can no. be some very interesting people. But Tom, uh, he is exactly how you think he is going to be at all times. At least the times you know I spent it up, and that was like that is like a very unique thing for me. Yeah, it is very unique. He is like that, but most comedians that are gigantically entertaining alone, they're kind of or in a small group, they're really shy. They're shy. Mm-hmm. They don't. It takes a lot to get them out, mm-hmm. come out. Right. I think it, they, sometimes they don't want to perform. And I think they're also fantastic observationists. So they want to, obs- because it's kind of raw material for them, but they don't want to perform. Now, okay, so this is somebody interesting. You've had curiosity connection people that are not good human beings that you don't agree yeah. with. And right. uh, I want to ask you about Castro, 
right? Either you met him, you had a conversation with him. Uh, how he was it to meet him be, in Cuba? In Cuba, right? And this is kind of the peak of his powers. How was it to meet him, talk to him, and in those conversations, right? Like I'm curious, like was there a something that you could relate to him about? Was there something that impressed you? Also, in the context of okay, this is not maybe a good human being in a lot of ways. How was that whole conversation? Well, yeah, you go into the meeting, you know, knowing everything about Fidel, um, mm-hmm. and that he's not only survived a lot of assassinations, mm-hmm. that he himself has killed a lot of people uh, himself, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. know, he's been pretty ruthless in his term, his very long term. So, you know that. But um, by the, you know, it was about a six-hour lunch, and you know kind of halfway in you realize he just knows everything about the basic needs of the human beings on this little island Cuba mm-hmm. he knows mm-hmm. every single thing about their basic needs their everyday life what they need what their you know survival education family life um, I often say he he knew the physics of the island better than anyone you could imagine he knew what a kilowatt represented to a light bulb in a house up right. in the mountains with you know limited electricity <laughs> i mean he he just knew everything and mm-hmm. he was able to particleize the island in a way that was very seductive you start mm-hmm. to think okay now i get it i get why the people are so indebted loyal to him you know why right. he has um you know this this kind of uh, power over them right. right do you think that gives you some insight uh, into how cult leaders work, uh, you know, sure. what makes them work, what's their appeal? It definitely does. It definitely makes you feel like I, I get how these, how people can be maneuvered into something that they wouldn't ordinarily do at all. Right. Because yeah. they are, you know, really they find themselves like on a sustained, you're in a sustained state of awe. Mm when you're with mm. someone like Cass Fidel. Right, um, right. You're, supposed to, you're not supposed to call him Cass. You're supposed to go like this. That means <laughs> Fidel. So when he was ready to meet with us, somebody came over and goes like this. So you don't say you don't say Fidel and you don't say any. If you say anything, you'd say Fidel. But normally you just go like that. And that wow. means wow. it's time. Wow, wow. that's crazy. Um, okay, okay. You know what? You know what? You should absolutely do that with your hair. Right, you yeah. should be like you know when, uh, when somebody wants to meet you, just you know, uh, let's do the hair, right? Uh, actually, the, the hair is actually very interesting, you know, because you talked about this. Uh, your hair didn't used to look this way, and in uh, uh, you know, talk to us about how this hairstyle came. Talk to, be. to us about the hair care treatment. Well, yeah, that too, but also I think in terms of it being a brand, it being a conversation starter, starter. it's very interesting. Well, Hollywood's built on iconography, right? Right. I mean. You know, there. Just think of it like this: there are movie stars that are tremendous actors, and then there's a sighting. Mm-hmm. A sighting is different than just an Oscar-winning actor. Right. Leo DiCaprio is different than Daniel Day Lewis. Right. They might be the same in talent, but Leo is a sighting. Daniel Day Lewis, you you know, uh, you know, he's he's different. You mm-hmm. you might not know it's Daniel Day Lewis. Or there was a time when you didn't know what De Niro looked, but who De Niro was in a crowd. Right. Now, right. now you do. But um, so, so I thought, well, then producers started to be their own icons. And they had, 
you know, beards and mustaches or both beards and mustaches to get. And I thought, I, you know, I need some something. Right. And, but there wasn't really anything I, you know, I didn't have a bad temper. And at the time, bad tempers were tolerated. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't throwing plates and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, plates of food at people or typewriters. or I wasn't doing that. Uh, some of those folks have been canceled uh, uh, in recent years. Yeah, they have now. Now they get canceled for that, of course. And I couldn't grow facial, real facial hair to have a mm-hmm. beard. And so I was kind of at a loss. And then one day I was swimming with my daughter, who was about three and a half years old at the time. For, and um, I popped my hair up and she said, wow, I like your, you know, a version of I like that. <laughs> what? Oh, my, your hair. Anyway, so I popped it up and it was much higher than this. Like it was crazy. Um, and I thought, you know, I think I'll just do this. It's an interesting litmus test for right. people. They're either going to think it's cool or different or interesting, or they're going to just think I'm an asshole. And uh, they did think both, by the way. <laughs> but they never really ignored you. But they never ignored you. And they talked about it. They never ignored me, no. So it, yeah. it became that a thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like similar for us, which is like, I'm sort of, tall i'm six foot six but we're together and you know um and you know you may not like us or you, uh, you, you may, but if you're kind of hard to ignore right we are memorable yeah. which is often the first step i think um i want to maybe go to your sighting you comment. memorable actually i wasn't sure when i you were really memorable i wasn't sure what you did when i met with mark andresen and chris and stuff and then i realized oh wait i later learned you're a partner i later learned all that but but um you always have something to say. You're very kind, but you you're you would be yeah, you're not avoidable. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to clip this out and I'm going to use this uh, uh, forever. Um, um, uh, thank you. That was so kind of you. Uh, yeah. I want to come back to the citing part because, you know, there's been this recent yeah. conversation where uh, Martin Scorsese, for example, you know, said that the Marvel movies are not exactly cinema. And then there was recently a podcast with uh, Tarantino where he talked about, uh, you know, the movie stars in, uh, well, the, the actors in these Marvel movies are not real movie stars in the sense that you are not going to one of these movies to watch X or Y that you might have, you know, gone to a Robert Nimero or Redford movie or, you know, take, uh, Paul Newman or think any of the classics. Right. Do you think that's true when you think of these huge franchises, be it Marvel, Star Wars? And also, what does it mean for the future of a, a movie star, the Leo DiCaprio's, the Brad Pitt's, the Clooney's? Um, I think those guys, their future is even bigger today mm. because... Uh, people are are yearning now for you know those '90s, 2000 movies. You know those hmm. movies that were built on movie stars. That were that were star vehicles, mm-hmm. and because they're very and today it's very differentiating. They want them more than ever because the movie going experience has been uh, it was has been sort of pushed back to all streaming for the most part. Right. And the differentiator is that big movie or the movie that's personified through a movie star mm-hmm. that um, that is, you know, kind of worthy of being seen in a theater with a thousand people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think their careers are, are, are even, are even more valuable. Their currency is even more valuable than it was even then. Oh, yeah. uh, one of my favorite scenes in Top Gun Maverick this summer 
uh, is I mean, amazing movie, you know, uh, for all the reasons people expect. But one of my favorite scenes is there's this bit where, uh, you know, um, Ed Harris tells Tom Hanks, we don't need the likes of you anymore. And Tom Hanks says, maybe so, but not today. And I thought it's kind of such an interesting sort of fourth wall breaking moment of like, uh, sorry, not Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, uh, you know, (laughs) but Tom Cruise going, hey, you know what, like, you know, maybe someday, you know, you don't need the likes of somebody like me, but you know, not today. today. It's such an interesting little meta moment, like uh, right there. I I wanted to ask you about uh, A Beautiful Mind. You know, it's one of the movies that, you know, I love the most. uh, And Triram knows this. I love math. And, uh, you know, just you're following... It's it's one of those movies which is profoundly poetic, sad. You know, you just uh, go through this journey of this mathematician. What I mean, I would love to know everything you know about this movie. Like, how did it get started? Uh, how did you even think about this? How like when you were meeting this couple, did you think of this as like that would be a good movie? Uh, how did you think through the whole you know? conceptual part of it to like the actual movie making and finish okay well i always wanted to make a movie that would help destigmatize mental disability so that preceded meeting john nash and sylvia john and sylvia and i was originally working on a movie that was based on a a different uh a different very successful schizophrenic that graduated top top of his class uh yale law school um but then it uh, i was doing it with brad pitt and unfortunately, before us making the movie, mm-hmm. he stabbed his fiance to death because he went off of his meds and hmm. became another narrative, another person. Hmm. And so we had to just scratch that right away. Then um, I became literally aware of John and Sylvia Nash through a friend of mine named Graydon Carter, who was the hmm. editor of Vanity Fair. Right. He, 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 told me, he said, why don't you look into this? This is something you're dying to do. Um, take a look at that. So I did. That was very helpful. And um, and I always wanted a, I wanted people to be sensitized to people, to human beings that are that have less than them, you know, and it could be in the, you know, in this case was in the form of any disability. Um, in the case of a beautiful mind, it was about schizophrenia, but it could have been a lisp. It could have been bipolarity. It could have been Asperger's. It could have been any type of disability that we just, and we just travel through life. And those people often are just invisible to us. We just keep Mm. driving or keep walking. And, um, and I, I knew that I did that myself periodically, even though, you know, um, I was, you know, very aware of all this. And so I thought, um, instead of watching some guy bang his head into a pole um, and just feel like, oh, that person is crazy. It'd be good for us to know what that person's going through so you could mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. or maybe do something about it. So that's kind of how the sum total of how it came about. Then I, there was a then there was a book that was A Beautiful Mind. It did not contemplate the beginning of the movie or the book being a thriller where you're living in the alternate reality. Mm-hmm. But because of a curiosity conversation I had, with, a, with this woman that I brought up named Veronica Denegre, who was tortured mm-hmm. in Chile, because I asked her, how did you survive this torture? And she said, by living in an alternate reality. And so that was a flashpoint for me. And I'd met her about 15, seven, 17 years before I even 
thought of doing a beautiful mind, but I remember right. that conversation vividly. And I remember what it looked like because she was right. able to describe what that second story was, the one she could live in to survive. Right. That, well, that's exactly what exactly what a schizophrenic goes through. And it's not invented, it's real. And just because it wasn't in the book, it's not something it is something that we can still do. Mm -hmm. So that's why the movie and so the movie was largely successful because it lived in this alternate reality in the, to start the movie, which make, which changed the genre of a movie from a drama to a thriller. A thriller, yeah. Yep. And thrillers have a lot of propulsion. Yeah. You know, that's what thrillers have. Yeah. Uh, and that's what they're all about. They yep. don't survive unless they have propulsion. Yep. Uh, well, that's not an ingredient that's necessary for a melodrama or a drama. I, I love that because it's something about the story genre match that's sometimes magical, which that is such a fascinating uh, bit. Uh, okay, I, we're almost out of time. And I want to ask okay. you one last thing, which is okay. say many, many, many decades from now, you know, let's say somebody's making the story of your life and there is a amazing montage sequence set to music where it's charting the story of Brian, you know, oh. from yelling in the parking lot through Beautiful Mind, through all the other movies before and after uh, today. And what would you want the audience who watches that movie to go home feeling? Um, the emotion would be joy, celebration of triumph. You yeah. know, hap yeah. um, happiness. There's yeah. going to be sadness along the way, but the ultimately happiness, yeah. like, like, like happiness of, wow, all things are possible. I can do mm -hmm. anything. Empowerment. Well, I mean, Brian, I just want to say this has been such a fascinating hour and you had such a fascinating life. And, uh, you know, I, I, one thing is, you know, in the Joseph Campbellian hero's journey, you know, you fit the journey so well. It's been amazing to see what you've overcome. You're sort of innate joy and curiosity, genuine curiosity in people, uh, and which I think like shines through. And I think also everybody, you know, I think I've been inspired, Arthi's been inspired, everybody watching this can see like, okay, I can do some version of what you are doing, hopefully. Yes. But uh, uh, I suspect that movie and all these movies so far, but that movie is going to leave people feeling definitely a bit sad, <laughs> but definitely joyful and inspired at the end of it. Um, yeah. I think for yeah. me, uh, I love how curious you are. And you continue to be, it's not like, oh, you know, I've made it, I've become really wealthy and I know all the people and that's it, I'm done. Like you're still at this and you're still doing it. And it's it's great because, you know, there's, it's just, it's a, it's a core part of your personality, which I think is really inspiring. And I think people can cultivate that and you can always have this learning mindset. And I think that's really important. You've often talked about how movie making is a lot like tech startups and, you know, starting a company is incredibly hard. Um, and we, I've, yeah, I've done that and it's just the journey that you go through you kind of live in your head a little bit on like are you crazy are you like should you be doing this what are you learning and so uh, I can see that like just talking to you I can see how it's so similar from what you're doing and the confidence that you give to your team or like Brian's going to figure it out I think that for me was very inspiring because that's what I aspire to do as a founder to give that safety net to my employees and to my team and to my people and have that be there um, I also think for me the conversationalist part of you 
is probably the most interesting and exciting where you think of every conversation as how do i entertain how do i you know make this a really good conversation for them like i can see your brain kind of go through this even during this conversation you're trying to pull up anecdotes and stories that you haven't yeah. said before and it, for me it's so it like you know we're new to the whole podcasting side of things mm-hmm. we learned so much just like watching you do this and you've been doing this for such a long time that's great so inspiring for us thank you it was a joy for me to be with you both this has been really cool thanks thanks so much brian uh, thanks uh, brian okay this was amazing thank you so honor. so much <laughs>